0: Welcome to Driving Ahead, NADA's podcast about trends shaping the future of the automotive world. Now, here's your host, Jonathan Collegio. Hey, guys. Welcome to Driving Ahead, a podcast brought to you by NADA. I'm Jonathan Collegio, and joining me today are the driving forces behind the Walzer Automotive Group, CEO Andrew Walzer and President Paul Walzer. The Walzer Group has 30 dealerships in four states, which means you two are very busy, guys, and thank you so much for making time today. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. So one of the things we're always looking to talk about is whenever people are doing things differently in the automotive industry, retail or or manufacturers, and there's no automotive group that I know that's doing things more differently than Walzer. Can can you just talk about your approach to the customer and the sales process and how you guys view auto retail? You take that one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I guess, you know, Paul and I were just talking about this as we reflected on not just last year, but maybe going forward around what it is that I'd like to see in terms of the big, you know, difference makers f- for us. I think for me, this whole idea that the experience for the customer is effortless. So it's a, it's a word I'm using a lot cause I think it implies a lot of great things, no one wants things complex and slow and complicated. And so we look at the customer experience, I think. How do we make it easy and look at what is best for the customer? Because most processes and dealerships, at least from what I know, and there's a lot of great dealers who do things, I think even in our own world, we feel like we're doing it the right way. But when you ask the question, is that better for the customer or better for us? A lot of times it's a process that actually is better for us and not the customer. And so when that happens, it's generally not effortless for the customer or the, or the employee. And If you can't make it effortless, effortless for the employee, there's no chance you're gonna make it easy or effortless for a customer to do business in sales or service. Because what you hear from every consumer about our our industry is it's too hard to buy a car. When when they say hard, which just means it just takes too much time. Why does it take so long to just get in and out? And so our happiest customers are the ones who start at home, right? They get most of it done. Uh, We've got one salesperson in our company who sells 70 or 80 cars a month to individual people. And I was talking about lunch the other day and I said, Well, how do you sell that many cars? And he said, You probably don't know this, but when every customer comes in, I tell them, if I can't get you out in 15 minutes, your car is free. Then I started laughing. I said, You don't, I said, you don't really say that, do you? And he said, I say it every time. And I go, I, I kind of looked at him, he goes, Andrew, have I ever given a car away? And I said, <laughs> Good point. But he makes it so easy because he understands when they get there. They've made a decision. The paperwork's ready. He's done. He's talked to him about all those things. They're not starting over when they get the dealership. So that is effortless to me. But he makes it that way. Um, Now, has Walzer made it effortless for him? I think that's what we're trying to figure out is how to automate some of these things with our software, which we could talk about. Uh, I'm sure later it'll come up with um, our Fuse software, which is taking a deal from start to finish to try to to simplify and, and automate the transaction for a customer and an employee without having to duplicate entry and um, all these different various systems that it takes car dealers to finish up and complete a car deal. If you think of state regulations, California maybe being the worst, with all the paperwork that a dealer is forced to do, with title work now being pushed really back on a dealership, not the state, how do we make something, even a cash deal, appear to be so easy and effortless to a customer? And that's actually figuring out how you basically smooth out all these processes and automate them and so that's what we're spending time trying to figure out and I guess I'm perpetually dissatisfied so we're not there but that's what I was telling Paul that's why I started the conversation I'm gonna die probably trying to get there where I feel like people come in and say I just I love buying a car for you because it's so easy and you don't hear that almost
2: ever in the car business It's just a whole different way of thinking than what was bred into us, I think, many, many years ago and what has been traditional in the car business and why, frankly, as an industry, we lag behind so many other industries because that was sort of the
0: way that we grew up in this thing. Now, you mentioned, Andrew, you mentioned that article that I sent to you. It's an article from Harvard Business Review called Competing on Customer Journeys. I'm I'm flattered that you guys read it. But, you know... It gets into the whole idea that if you're in a retail setting and you're selling products that aren't differentiated from other retailers, right? I mean, I could buy a Chevy Silverado from Walzer or from another dealer and and, and receive the exact same product. There's only really two ways that you can differentiate yourself from your competitors. One of them is on price, which is kind of a dead end because you're just competing against your own margins. And then the other is differentiating yourself through the experience. So that's what you all have done. Can you talk about one person, one price? And where that idea came from, and how you actually implemented it, because I know that a lot of dealers talk about it, but explain how you got to the point where you are today, Paul. Well, I think it was a two thousand one. Yep. Well, we just—I
1: uh, don't know how the conversation started. We just—I think he made a mention to me. Hey, what do you think about one price selling? I mean, this two thousand one, so twenty-two years ago. And I said I love the idea, um, and I think it was just a bit of a journey we went on to say. I went and researched. There was a few dealers doing it. Spent time in their stores and. I think we like the concept of trying to make it really, I think at the time was just collapse time and make it easy for employees. Again, I'm not sure we were thinking about effortless, but negotiation itself takes time. And at the end of the day, there's generally a winner or a loser. So we just sort of said, can't we just simplify this? And, and you know what? There's a margin that we have to make and we want to make it consistent and easy for customers to know that they don't have to worry about being overcharged. And people don't ever call me and go, hey, thanks for the great price ever, right? Even if it was a great price, what they say is, wow, you guys, I just, I was in and out in 10 or 15 minutes. Like, and when they say that we have to be more aware, we're, we're still not there. I always tell my brother, cause he's the most impatient person ever, um, mm-hmm. that he asked me he "said well, so how's Fuse being built? I said, it's actually being built around how you would buy a car, which is zero patience. What are we waiting for? How come, how come we can't keep going? But what are we doing now? Like, you know, Paul's the kind of guy that would be like, I'll just go to lunch if this is be more than five minutes because I don't have five minutes to wait. So if I could actually solve for my brother's retail experience, I think
0: I actually have obviously made it effortless. That's what I'd say. And one person, can you talk about that as well? Because, you know, that, that's often a, stress, a frustration. You go to the showroom, you see it, you're handed off to somebody else. Talk about that, please. Yeah, I think one person for me was really another attempt to collapse
1: time and make it easier because I I did F&I, I think Paul did too. Um, I did it back in the early 90s, and what's kind of sad is it hasn't changed much from the early 90s in terms of a traditional F&I office, and why does it take too long to buy a car in most stores? Because you have to wait 45 minutes, some days, two hours on a Saturday to get into the finance office, and then it's another 45 minutes at least as they sell you products to someone that you don't know. So I think the idea was that we would collapse time, not, not about saving money. Uh, for for Walzer about getting rid of F&I managers, it was really just how to make the customer experience more seamless and eliminate one more person in the process. Because every time you had a person in any process, whether it's a person who trade, appraises the trade, who sells accessories, you're just lengthening the experience. At the end of the day, is it better for the customer or better for the house? And I think we always have to make decisions on what's best for the customer and work our way backwards. I think we've always been aligned on that.
0: Now, scale is an issue here, and you know you guys have scale. You have 30 stores, and so you're able to to collapse the F and I process by kind of like putting that offsite, right? How would a dealer who doesn't have 30 stores look at collapsing the time in the F and I program? Because that, that is a universal problem, especially on the weekends. There's a bottleneck, somebody doesn't have a good credit, and then before you know it, everybody's waiting three hours. Like what would your suggestion be to a dealer somewhere else who doesn't have the scale to do it in the exact same way that you do? Well, so we actually don't have a centralized F&I area. We have four or
1: five people that are kind of, um, I'll call them people who can rehash a deal with the bank uh, because you still are going to need that from time to time. We're a little bit lucky. We live in um, Minneapolis, Minnesota, actually in Wichita, I have some of the highest FICO scores in the country. So I think our average FICO is 760, which is, I think most dealers will tell you, it's unheard of. So it makes it a little bit easier because the software that we've Built that's proprietary to us, handles the whole transaction. The only time that they actually really need to reach out to a bank is when there's a, you know, the, it gets called at a different uh, number, a different interest rate, something that, you know, the credit is marginal. And we've identified that as about 20% of the time in our world. So we have four or five people that aren't like on, they're just mobile that can pick up the phone. It's sort of an escalation to talk to the bank and to get the deal approved. So what I would say to a a dealer that's doing it in a store, I still think you need a person at the store to do rehash deals with banks because it's hard to, to work through a computer. Now, if you're doing a lot of special finance, you probably still need one or two people at the store. But generally speaking, these rehash calls with banks aren't really complex. You just need to talk to someone to get the approval.
2: Jonathan, I don't think it's a scale issue at all. Honestly, when we first started this, we were considerably smaller than we are today. And, you know, the, the 30 some odd stores that you reference. you know, this is the majority of those stores have come into our world, you know, after we made the decision to, to, uh, to go with a, you know, single point of contact. So I don't really see any aspect of this that's scale driven. I think an individual dealer, even a small one could do these things. And, and, uh, and improve the customer experience.
0: Now, that, that that's a great point. You did mention, you know, you develop software. You guys are you guys are a tech-focused company. Paul, would you have imagined in 2001 that you guys would have been developing your own proprietary software in order to flatten the the F&I process? No, I don't even imagine it today. Uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> what what honestly happens is that you 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 first sort of start off with this idea of, you know, who do you want to be when you grow up? And you start to make decisions in a different way, perhaps, than we did, you know, before one price. You know, we started to think differently about the business. And a lot of this stuff evolves. If you're asking yourself the question, how do we improve the customer experience? How do we collapse time, as Andrew says? That leads you into a whole different world of decision-making than you might have had before that. And so I think fundamentally what happened to us in 2001 is we just started to think different, ask different questions. I can remember this. We were before two thousand and one. One thing that we've done for a long, long time is had our same name on every single store. So that journey was many, many years before two thousand and one. So our our stores always have had the Walzer name on it. And I remember going to a grocery store and checking out, and you hand your credit card to the you know to the you know the person that's ringing up the groceries, and she'd go, oh. Uh, you're, are you with the Walzer group? And I remember always being nervous about answering the question because I wasn't sure if I was about to get an earful from somebody that had a terrible experience or if I was going to get something that was quite the opposite. And so I remember feeling like, you know, I don't want to have to worry about that. Uh, I, we got to figure out some way to make this. So that the chances of us having a good experience are much, much better. So I don't have to worry about buying bananas next week. And so uh, I think it really, it, it just, it was really interesting that we kind of both came to this at the same time. And so really, I believe it's been an evolution of just thinking about the business different than we were before. And so a lot of this stuff has just happened over time. The software that you're referencing came about as a result of the fact that we wanted to you know, to eliminate the finance role and do single point of contact, and that led us to to collapse time. Yeah, to yeah collapse there was time. no solution out the, there. We
1: the, would oh, want the solution if it was out there. At the yeah, time. I think it's um, that's a really good way to frame. I think any process in a dealership is, what outcome do you want, right? So let's just say the the car buying experience and break it down to how long should it take for a customer? At the end of the day, customers do love to experience drive the car, but when you get to yes. How long do we want it to take? And I think that's a, it's a curse um, because there's no dealer out there that I know that wants to do it bad. They all want to go faster. They all want to take care of the customers. But at the end of the day, most of the processes in their dealership conflict with that idea. You just can't do it because they're,
0: they've broken it down into these pieces that are profitable for the dealer. So you started by, you wanted to do things differently. You started questioning the assumptions that are built into your business. But then that also ended up having these incredible second and third order consequences, right? I mean, your organization is extremely flat. There's not a lot of hierarchy at the dealership. A lot of the structure has been cut out, which has ended up lowering your cost structure relative to other dealerships.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, if, and I'm in a 20 group with 12 other uh, large dealer groups. So 230 dealerships about, depending on who's buying and selling in the group at any given time, we're about half of what it costs to transact from a people side. Again, that wasn't the reason to do it because it, if I'm going to save money and and make it more complex and hard, that would really be a conflict with what I've just told you. So the idea is, can you actually do it for less and still through automation, technology, and good process development with the customer journey, thinking of that effortless experience in mind, if we can do it for even half the, uh, even the same amount, Paul and I would have taken that bet. So it was never about, we never, we never did it to lower the cost. In fact, that was just the outcome of, of how it works. So it wasn't like, we're going to eliminate this position because a lot of the positions are actually inefficient and are in the way of effortless that
2: are actually in the most dealerships. I think it's a natural tendency in business. Sometimes when you're trying to attack a problem to hire a person to solve it, <laughs> you know, so we're not doing enough of this, let's hire someone to can do that for us. And you end up with too many people and too many layers and, you, you know, all kinds of things like that. I think you really, I think we got to be very careful about how we think about, you know, solving problems. So I, I told, I told my brother this, that, you know, when we went to one person,
1: um, I remember going to the Apple store shortly before him and I spent more time on it. it. It was a huge line because every Apple store back in 2011 was like, there's a line out there, door. actually there probably still is. Um, I was there to get like an accessory, like a charging cord, you know, and I walked in and it was this huge, it was a mob scene. I'm like, so I'm walking around. I'm like, I go to the, the, the accessory cords I find when I'm like, I look at, this is too many people. I'm going to come back. So I, as I'm about to walk away, one of the Apple people said, Hey, can I help you? And I said, I'm just here to buy accessory for it. You guys are swamped. I'll come back at a different time when you guys are less busy. Not that big a deal. He said, he said, well, oh, I can, I can just check you out right here. I'm like, it's 2011, right? So like mobile cashiering right now is like, like then I'm like, that's kind of a great concept. Like, so what you realize is everyone in Apple store is a cashier. Now, differences buying a car and an accessory are different things, but can we make cashiers out of every
0: salesperson, which completely eliminates the cashier line? That's a great story. I love that. one of the One of the biggest drivers of efficiencies in the next 10 years is going to be AI. I was talking to a guy from the Middle East last week. He he runs a large government entity in the Persian Gulf, and he told me that he's using AI every morning to summarize and answer all of his emails, and it saves him something like 60 to 90 minutes a day. I mean, are you guys looking at AI as a way to streamline even further your business processes? So yes,
1: Paul's son, my nephew, Sawyer, has actually been experimenting on some things with buying cars and doing some calculations that are through AI. For FPNA, I think there's you sort of wonder what's gonna happen with that position because the person who heads our FPNA right now is actually using AI. And he said, the good news is he said he only got a couple of years left to doing this because he's gonna retire. He goes, because by the time two years happens, everything I'm telling you right now can be done in AI. Like it's that amazing. They can read a spreadsheet, they can give you the high-level thoughts. He's actually showing it to us already, right? It can't analyze everything because there's nuances, obviously, with with our business. But like, it's amazingly intuitive to give it a, just a spreadsheet of numbers, and it actually tells you what it means. Which is, yeah. So I think that's a that's an area that I think is absolutely going to be changed in dealerships is the the access to information quicker, more accurately, and like just at your fingertips is like I think a game changer.
2: No, there's a, there's there's always something new. Right, I mean it, it. you know, many many years ago, all of a sudden there was this thing called the internet, and you can choose to embrace it or you can choose to reject it. And it, it you know, the older I get, the more I'm in the reject mode because it seems too complicated to me. But I'm re- gonna make it effortless. For you. Yeah, thank you. The the reality is is that you have to embrace it and you have to continue to look forward to how can we be relevant as the world continues to evolve and the tools continue to change. So you. You really don't have any choice in the business, I don't think, but to
0: embrace what's coming and to figure out how to do it better than everybody else. So, Paul, you've taken a little bit of a step back. Talk about your transition from day-to-day operations to your your current role. And Andrew, you know, also just talk about what it's like. I mean, you're effectively running a very large company. What What is a day like for you guys today? We had a
2: wonderful meeting just a couple of weeks ago discussing the very thing that you're talking about. It First of all, for me, I was really lucky because not everybody has a brother like Andrew. So when... Six years now, even... Six years ago, almost right today, we transitioned uh, the CEO role from me to Andrew. Um, And honestly, we probably could have done it many years earlier because he was clearly ready to go. I was just reluctant to give it up for fear, frankly, of, you know, what am I going to do? You know, I still got to wake up every day with a purpose. So in terms of the transition, it was very, very smooth. Philosophically, Andrew and I have been on the same page for as long as I can remember. So we've thought about things the same way. We have the same goals with respect to the, you know, the brand, the customers, the employees. So there was it wasn't like we were zigging and all of a sudden we were going to zag. So it was a continuing on the same path philosophically, but very different strengths he has versus mine so that... Senior team probably needed to be more aligned to fill in uh, the holes that maybe Andrew would have had versus the holes that I had, which were much bigger. So we were ready to go, and that, that transition was incredibly smooth. The, the challenge for me, honestly, was was just replacing a pretty good chunk of my week. You know, you're, 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 you're working. This is a job that you don't do in 40 hours. So all of a sudden, I got a whole bunch of time on my hands. And thankfully, uh, you were there with NADA to, you know, throw some stuff at me, uh, you know, and, and still stay in the industry. And and Andrew has been uh, uh, very kind to allow me to continue to do some of the things I was doing before. I'm involved in our M&A activity, and we've got some partnership uh, businesses where I'm sort of the liaison between Walzer and those, and those people, and I'm still on the board with the NADA, so... I'm I'm keeping myself busy, but he's doing all the heavy lifting. Talk about the heavy lifting, Andrew. People, I say, you know.
1: So we have two thousand employees approximately in a given time. I would say, same question for Paul: How do you run a company this size? You have to have really great people. You know, one of the uh, my friends who's on our advisory board is a CEO of a public company, and I asked him early on when I was fifty. By the way, I was not ready earlier, even at fifty. No one's ready to be to take that next step, right? but I've had some good mentorship obviously through Paul. And then um, some of my friends who are, who I, I just sort of idolize, but he, he said, uh, I said, how, how much of your time are you spending recruiting, right? Cause we have a recruiting department, but it seems like, you know, if you're getting a talent, you don't have someone else recruit a talent. And he said, 40% of my time, I spend thinking about improving my team. I'm like, wow, this is a guy who's really successful, who I admire, super humble, smart. And I know Paul knows him too it really sort of changed my, my view. Like, I gotta spend my time building the team, the culture, um, but I can't do that without the right people on the bus. So I, I think, and Paul, I think would uh, agree with this. The team we have is probably the best we've ever had. I'm one of the oldest now, because uh, by age 56, what do you know? 68, 69. <laughs> um, but I would say, unfortunately, unfortunately, I spent a lot of my times in meetings. Uh, Paul and I have made a, a habit of doing skip level meetings. So we try to go down levels. I'm really curious about what's happening with our customers. And the only way to do that is is to not to talk to our directors. It's to talk to the GMs, talk to the people, sales managers, to go into stores. So I wish I could do more of that. But I'd say most of my time is spent strategically with my direct reports and
0: directors figuring out a way to build a, a better mousetrap. It's a very distinct culture that you have there. What, what do you do to to kind of seed that with your with the folks underneath you? Because they should be ans- asking questions too, right? You don't, You want them to be restless and dissatisfied kind of in the same way as you are. Yeah, I think the, the biggest struggle for people is, you know, they're so far in the
1: forest, they can't see the trees anymore, the old expression. It's been... it's. In this position, and I think Paul would say the same thing. You're, you're on the periphery of everything, and because I've, oh, I've basically done every job in the dealership except accounting and parts, probably. Right? I'm not sure if you did parts. Maybe you did. Dusted parts bins. Does that count? It, uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> I've counted parts. <laughs> did you guys turn wrenches? You didn't. Did you turn wrenches? No, no. But I was a service advisor for a year, and um, so you know, just having an appreciation for all those jobs. But I think, um, I think, when you ask the questions to people out of curiosity. Without, sometimes I'd say Paul knows the answer already, but like just asking the question gets them to go, you know, I didn't think about it that way. And a lot of times the answers are right there. You just got to get them to see it in a different way. And it's easy for us. I always say, they always feel bad. Like, God, I should have thought of that. Well, don't, don't worry about it because you are doing it every day. It's really simple for us to step back and go, wow, if we thought about doing it this way, they're like, yeah, no, you're right. Maybe we should think about it that way. So it's kind of just like a learned skill and he's the best at it. You know I mean? So my reports and directors, we always say architects and general contractors, the stores are general contractors. They're the ones who have to execute. Our directors should be architecting with them. But the truth is they're equally important, but one is spends more time building a vision of it and how it works, how the house can come together and be beautiful. The contractor has to understand how to do that and build it and execute it. So when the two are married together, it's it's a, it's a one plus one equals five. Um, when they're not, it's one plus one equals zero. That's and that's the struggle sometimes when you're getting people with great a great architect with no buy-in from the contractor, the house isn't gonna get built, right? So even a bad architecture with a great contractor, so even weak strategy with great contracting you're going to still
0: have a pretty good house that's solid. Probably not beautiful, right? But you want us both. Let's zoom out. So much stuff going on in the industry right now. EVs, inventory levels. What would you say is the most important thing going on in automotive right now that no one's talking about or that more people should be talking about? Well, I, obviously, Jonathan, the EV
2: thing is is the big thing at, at the moment. And you know, how are we going to achieve the standards that have been put forth by the government for both from the oems as well as the dealers and and the early indications are that we are running at a much faster pace than we ought to be and and this this is a concern i feel like you can spend a lot of time worrying about things like that and but historically these things work themselves out so we'll we'll find a more sensible path that's going to be uh i think more realistic, aligned with consumer interest and things like that. So as a dealer, you know we want to have a voice in the conversation, but I don't think it's worthwhile to spend a lot of your time stressing over it because you only really have so much control. I've always felt, and I think Andrew feels the same way, that the best defense we have as an organization to protect our future is to make sure that we're executing as good as, not better than our competitors are. Because when things get really, really difficult, the poor performers are going to fall off. And, you know, the, the people that are doing it well will always be fine. And so that's the thing we can control, how good we can be just being ourselves. And I, I think that's the best thing. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about where things are going. I mean, I you know, this business has survived o- over 100 years, and we've been predicted to die probably a 1,000 times, you know, within that Period, and yet here we are, and arguably in the last couple of years having some of the best times we've ever had. We just gotta stay vigilant. We certainly need, and I strongly support, as you know, the efforts of our National Trade Association. I think that we need to be vigilant both at the at the state level with our state associations as well as the National Association to continue to work together to tackle the the issues that the industry faces. And now more than ever, I see us being really aligned with the OAMs. As opposed to being opponents, obviously, we're still fighting over scraps from time to time, but I do think the more we can work together to, to tackle some of these challenges and to make sure that the franchise system is still the absolute best way to retail
0: automobiles. There's no one better to ask about the status of the local economy than a, a car dealer. You guys are dealing with the folks who are you know, making purchases of durable goods. or are trying to achieve financing. I was talking to a dealer the other day who is deeply concerned about interest rates. And how they're affecting uh, the affordability of, of cars? I, I just at back at the envelope. I, I looked at if you were to buy a house in 2021 when interest rates kind of bottomed out, you bought a four hundred thousand dollar house back then versus the same four hundred thousand dollar house today. Your payment would be almost seventy percent more today than it would have been had you were had you financed the the exact same property in, in 2021. That's going to have a huge material impact, not only on like future foreclosures, but it also has has an impact on on the ability of folks to actually purchase vehicles. Are you guys seeing that at the ground level in your dealership yet? That, that you know people aren't qualifying, or what's going on in, in in that world? So I'd say in Minneapolis,
1: you can probably comment on California, but Minneapolis and Kansas, Kansas, we have all the mainstream luxury brands. I think you know when you have the affordability issues that we're talking about, I think people who have we're buying luxury cars are less impacted. Their payments still went up 70%, but a lot of those customers have cash and, and could afford to, to absorb it. Minneapolis is also one of these markets that I think over time has really been, we don't ever enjoy the high highs, but we really don't actually have low lows because we've got, what, 17 Fortune 500s. It's a very stable economy. People are from here, which doesn't make any sense when you look at our weather. Uh, <laughs> the People stay here. Families are here. So I think we're maybe a little bit isolated in a good way. But you're right. The OEMs have really just abandoned leasing for the most part. And that's going to be interesting to see. Hyundai kind of coming back with um, some aggressive offers. I think it's a big mistake uh, to do that. People are still, even in Minneapolis, people still buy a new car based on payments. But at the end of the day, I think we're going to need some of these lease programs to come back to make things more affordable. And we're seeing right now inventories coming back. In a big way, we do a monthly meeting with our, called a market share meeting just for new cars, and we invite the OEMs in, and our GM kind of presents the plan for the month. And after it was all over, this last one, I I looked at our team and I said, all of a sudden it felt like 2019 again. Like at most of the brands, it's, it's almost like we have inventory on the ground, and it's actually, and everyone else does too, and it's starting to stack up that was not that world six months ago. Toyota, Honda and Subaru are still probably light, but the rest of our mainstream brands, it, it came back that fast. So that combined with interest rates
0: and floor plan, interest rates to customers, it'll be interesting to see what happens next year. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a new world. Before we finish, I wanna ask you guys, you're both tremendously successful. What is the most valuable thing that you guys do that you don't get paid for? Like what? What is your passion work? I want to. I'm, I'm specifically uh, interested about Andrew. Why not Paul? <laughs> <laughs> he's, you know, I mean, he's, the, he's 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 sitting back now. He's trying to look for things to do. But CEO of a 30 store group. I'm just I'm I'm curious. Uh, you know, my I'm obsessed with getting trying to figure out a better way to
1: do things. Like that's that's why I get up in the morning. I love problems. Good news is we have lots of them, so it's easy to get up in the morning and have something to do. But I love to figure out how to improve things even just a little bit generally i'm thinking about the customer experience we need all of our people thinking about that right i mean it's not the ritz carlton we still have to sell we don't even make the product really all we have is the journey like how can we do that better it actually simplifies it i don't have to worry about what size engine is going to go on this car and what equipment i should have on it i have to order it the best way but at the end of the day how do i provide the best experience for a customer that no one would want to go anywhere else That is my obsession. And I hate to say it, but it is an obsession because I honestly just sometimes, I'll never be probably totally satisfied until my brother could buy a car and go, that was easy. I'm not sure that'll ever happen. Everyone wants things faster today. Buying a car and sometimes servicing it can be complex. We as dealers have to make it easy. That's what the OEMs want to. I am one of those that don't think the OEMs want to get in our business. They just want to actually have us do it faster and easier for the customer. They don't want to go retail cars but I think they get frustrated sometimes that dealers can, we can be part of the solution a little bit more and obsessed over trying to
2: how to create a better customer journey. Paul, oh, what's your passion work? One of the challenges, Jonathan, is that I think when you get into this business, it it grabs a hold of you in a way where it becomes difficult to have a more balanced life because it just it's so consuming. And uh, my conversation with Andrew recently in part was to try to Figure out how to dial him back a little. I'm concerned, obviously, because I love him. He's my brother and I want him to be healthy and around for a long time. And he's working a lot, a lot, a lot out. And it's just. I still love it. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. it is. It's. it's
1: yeah, that's fine. It's not work. Right. It's actually, that is my pet. It's my hobby, actually. You know? I mean, yeah.
2: I used to be pretty good at well, he was a great golfer. <laughs> what makes me mad is he golfs three times
0: a year and I do it a hundred and we go on golf and he kills me. <laughs> That's, good, you <laughs> That's it. One thing we ask all of our guests on the on the way out, what was your first ride? What was the, what was the first car you had and, uh, and what are you driving now? My first car was a 1968 Olds Delmont
2: 88. It was green. I bought it for $200. And I took it off to college with me and I didn't realize that you had to put oil in cars. And so the engine seized up and it sat in the parking lot of my fraternity for about six months before they voted an active chapter that I had to get the car out of there. Andrew? I was a uh, a
1: bright fire engine red Chevy Chevette with vinyl seats and an AM radio. No air conditioning, but it was transportation. I, I know Paul and I are the same. Like, we don't really care what we drive. Like, I am not. Sounds terrible, but I I don't have like a passion for like driving. A, I mean, we've got You're not almost everything. Well, you could drive everything, but like I've kind of always looked at it as just point A to point B. I don't care if it's used, it's new. I just love the business. I love the people in the business. And if I was selling toasters or computers, I'd probably have the same thing. How do we get better and have a better customer experience? So I love what the opportunity is and the fact that cars have so many different sort of economic uh, ways to, to actually make profit, but- I don't think we're like really car are we? Yeah, no, I don't really care about them. Which is probably true because I really didn't care that I drove a Chevette with no air conditioning <laughs> and AM radio. I just, I just was six happy I could get to my friend's house. Excellent.
0: Andrew and Paul Walzer, thank you guys so much for joining us today on Driving Ahead, the podcast of NADA. We'll get you all next time. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Okay, thanks, Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. I want to extend a huge thank you to our guests, Andrew and Paul Walzer, for joining us today. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating or review, tell a friend. This has been Driving Ahead with NADA. I'm Jonathan Calecchio. Until next time, see you on the road. This podcast was produced in partnership with Amaze
2: Media Labs.